The problem is oftentimes the threat, the way that the threat manifests on your platform is actually a function of the way that it's manifesting somewhere else on the internet. And I do not think that platforms systematically have developed the ability to understand the, that actual threat dynamic and then build it back into what they're doing on their own platform. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 26, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. On May 14th, a shooter attacked a supermarket in a historically black neighborhood of Buffalo, New York, killing 10 people and wounding three. The streaming platform Twitch quickly disabled the live stream that the shooter had published of the attack, but video of the violence and copies of the white supremacist manifesto released by the attacker online continue to circulate on the internet. How should we evaluate the response of social media platforms to the tragedy in Buffalo? Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Brian Fishman, who worked formerly at Facebook, now Meta, as the policy director for counterterrorism and dangerous organizations. Brian helped lead Facebook's response to the 2019 Christchurch shooting, another act of far-right violence live-streamed online. He walked us through how platforms respond to crises like these, why it's so difficult to remove material like the Buffalo video and manifesto from the internet, and what it would look like for platforms to do better. Before we begin, I want to note that we recorded this on May 24th, shortly before the shooting that day in Uvalde, Texas, and so the tragedy in Texas isn't part of our discussion here. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 26th, Social Media Platforms on the Buffalo Shooting. So Brian, before we jump in, I wanted to ask you to just tell us a little bit about your background so people have a sense of the experience that you're bringing to the table here. I, I see you quoted uh, most often in the press as the person who used to lead Facebook or Meta's counterterrorism efforts on, on dangerous organizations, but you also have a, a great deal of other relevant experience before then. Can you just tell us a little bit about your academic background and areas of expertise? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess the I, I think about myself for better or for worse, as having a career that has been really defined by the 9-11 era. Um, I moved to Washington, D.C. after college on September 10th, 2001. So 9-11 was literally my, my first morning in D.C. looking for a job. I wound up working on the Hill for a bit and then going up to New York for graduate school. And, and after that, getting uh, a gig at a place called the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, where I eventually became the research director uh, and the interesting thing about that job was that we were doing at the time uh, what is now known as sort of open source intelligence, but at the time was really an underdeveloped sort of methodology and field. Our, our OPSEC was bad. We, we didn't always know exactly what we were doing, but we were aggressively trying to understand what Al-Qaeda and, and the progenitors of, of ISIS, ultimately Al-Qaeda in Iraq, were saying about themselves and, and, and saying to each other. And those techniques ultimately have been refined and improved by, by a wide range of folks as what we now think of as open source intelligence. At the time, we would walk in and talk to intelligence agencies and folks, and they would say, how did you learn this stuff? And we would say, well, we just read it on the internet. We, we looked at what folks were saying, and that was a, a pretty jaw-dropping statement at the time. So after that, I was at uh, the New America Foundation uh, in, in Washington for a little while. And then I worked at Palantir uh, Technologies doing 
uh, disaster relief and crisis response stuff, which was a lot of fun running around to, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and, and trying to help folks. And then I wrote a book about ISIS based on my teaching and work when I was at West Point. And then after that, went to Facebook, um, where I led the, the work, the policy work around terrorism, and then ultimately hate orgs, etc. Great. So we want to come back to, you know, your your expertise in ISIS, which is sadly relevant, but sort of focusing on the main reason we're talking now and today, you were at the company formerly known as Facebook in 2019, uh, when the Christchurch shooter live-streamed his attack on on New Zealand, a New Zealand mosque using Facebook Live. And unfortunately, you know, several years later, we're sitting here and the Buffalo shooting that happened a couple of weeks ago also involved live-streaming. The shooter began streaming on Twitch and Twitch managed to take down the video only two minutes after the shooting began. I'm wondering if you can just walk through what it's like responding to an event like this on your platform. Like, we obviously don't have details about this specific event and we shouldn't speculate too much uh, until more comes to light. But, you know, when something like this starts happening on a platform, what are the next few things that happen? What would have happened with inside Twitch um, as that started and more broadly across the industry? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I, I think the first thing that happens is, is, you know, people become aware somehow, either there is some internal trigger that, that makes you aware that something terrible has happened in the world, or um, as happens, sometimes you find out because, it, you know, it, it shows up on social media or in the media somewhere else. And, and then you, you have to, to deal both with the sort of human response of feeling sympathy for victims and sort of outraged more generally with the need to do your job, uh, which means run around and figure out if there is, you know, any linkage to the platform you work for. Now, when you're, when you're Facebook, there's almost always some kind of linkage because the platform is so big. It's not quite the case at every other platform, but um, certainly in my experience in that kind of role, you, you start from the, the assumption that there is something. And if there's not anything yet, there will be. And so I, I think, you know, in a circumstances like this, not understanding exactly how Twitch became aware of this and, and you know, which which would drive a lot of their behavior, you know, what a platform is going to do is they're going to take whatever immediate action they can, and then they're going to start to investigate. Are there other echoes of this on their platform in the near term? Are there things that law enforcement needs to know very quickly? Do they have the right connections to be able to share that kind of information um, very quickly? And now increasingly platforms, because of the GIF-CT or the, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, platforms have responsibilities and, uh, and commitments in many cases to share what they know with, with other platforms because, you know, all of these phenomena uh, occur essentially in, in sort of a, you know, a, a, a trans-platform place across across many platforms on the internet more generally, not just on a specific platform. So we definitely want to ask you about GIFCT and the role of, of that in the response. But before we get to that, were you impressed with Twitch's response? I mean, on, on the one hand, the video uh, being live after the shooting began for only two minutes was enough time for someone to you know download the footage, which has subsequently been posted and seen millions of times and platforms seem to be having a hard time containing it. But on the other hand, two minutes is, is really quite fast. And reportedly only 22 viewers had actually turned in live by the time that the, the stream went down. Um, so did Twitch do well here from your perspective? 
by all accounts, Twitch did about as well as we could we could hope to expect. That said, I think everyone's got to understand that whether it's Buffalo or Christchurch, the the real damage in terms of the consumption of these videos is not while they're live, right? It is it happens afterwards when you know, in many cases, it seemingly it's it's primarily supporters of these attacks that download the video and then re-upload them. And so while I think Twitch deserves credit here because they were able to get to this quickly and, and the, the mechanism there is not totally clear. And by the way, I, I just want to say, I'm glad the mechanism is not clear. I hope Twitch is able, you know, it, it makes this conversation a little bit more vague, but I hope Twitch is able to to hold its cards close there because that ambiguity will create some challenges for for people thinking about attacks like this in the future. And, and they're clearly thinking about that. You see that in the statements that their leaders have made. And I, I congratulate them for that. And I think, and I hope we, we, as a wider community, give them space to share that information quietly to people that actually can do some good with it and not necessarily broadcast it more generally. So let's jump to, because I can't resist going there straight away, the worst acronym uh, in the business, which is GIFCT. You know, after Christchurch, it really seemed like there was this never again kind of moment for for the platforms because it was uh, such a, a failure in terms of the, the just complete failure to contain that footage. And they they really have across the industry leaned into this GIFCT. Can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of what that looked like? Like after the Buffalo shooting, the GIFCT somewhat quickly announced that they'd activated their crisis incident protocol, which sounds really good, but I'm not really sure what that involves. And there's not a lot of transparency around how it works. And, you know, to be honest, like, I mean, it seems like the industry is getting a lot better at this, but it's not clear, you know, how much better or worse it would have been without this. So how does that work? What has been ramped up and what what happens in an incident like this? And why is that institution important? Yeah, Evelyn, I, you know, I, I want to circle back to, to something that you said in, in a minute, which is I think everyone indexes on Christchurch and now and now Buffalo, but there are a number of other live streams or attempted live streams that we should take into consideration. And but let, let we can come back to that. When it comes to the the situation with GIFCT, what you've got to remember is that in 2019, GIFCT was still a relatively nascent entity. It was not a formal NGO standing on its own at that point. It was a consortium of of tech companies. And the hash database that had been established to share hashes, digital, you know, essentially digital fingerprints of of, of files was restricted to propaganda produced by groups uh, sanctioned by the United Nations. And, you know, so this is big, major organizations, international organizations, but notably it does not include, because the UN does not sanction these groups, uh, any white supremacist organizations. And so there was not a protocol at that time for companies to share video by other entities. And, and there wasn't a protocol to share content or hashes of content created by attackers in the context or in the in the process of of an attack. And so, in the wake of Christchurch, obviously, you know, Facebook had some of these hashes. There was an extraordinary proliferation of adversarial behavior by supporters of the 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 Christchurch attack um, to try to edit that video and 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 
that w in ways that would enable it to be posted to the internet, to digital platforms and circumvent hash-based detection. And so what wound up happening, of course, is that big platforms, including Facebook, were identifying those copies, hashing those copies, and getting these sort of ever longer lists of, of hashes. And what we did uh, in the immediate wake of Christchurch was develop that protocol on the fly. And this was both sort of policy guidelines, but also some procedures to be able to share hashes of an attacker produced video with you know, other companies in the moment. And uh, there are lots of twists and turns there. Frankly, there, you know, there's some really amazing engineering work by young engineers at Facebook and elsewhere to make those things work. And I think that kind of stuff gets lost in the broader political and policy debates about these things. It's just how hard some of these folks worked to make those things possible, even with all of the failures that we, that we all can recognize. Um, I'm very grateful to, to many of those folks for the work that they put in in those moments. What happened after Christchurch, though, in part because of the efforts of, you know, Prime Minister Ardern and various diplomats from the New Zealand government and everyone else trying to build the Christchurch call, was to both establish GIFCT as an independent NGO, but also codify some procedures for these crisis moments. And so now there are, those procedures are codified, you know what to do. And I think what we see in the Buffalo circumstance is, you know, steady, if incremental improvement on those processes. I hope GIFCT comes out and sort of explains, you know, some of that improvement and where they still have a ways to go. What you see there in many ways is some consolidated communication. Everybody's going to want more from GIFCT. What governments oftentimes want in these situations is they want, they want to be able to call one number, right? They're hoping that they can call GIFCT and GIFCT will be able to tell them everything that's going on on the internet. That is not a realistic expectation. It's not really going to work that way. But GIFCT's efforts to sort of bring in the hashes, be able to share them quickly, and then provide updates about what they're doing are in large measure an effort to try to explain to non-industry partners, including the media, but also but really governments, hey, we're on this. Industry is working on this. We are doing our part. And you may not get all the details that you want, but we are, we are running our process. And we can tell you about that process in general terms. We can tell you that it is running now. And we, there's, there's a hand on the wheel. Um, and I think that that's kind of what you see out of those communications is an effort to reassure folks that that is the case. I want to talk a little about the the question of how the platforms and GIFCT are doing on on hashing, because I do think that this has been a, a subject of some reporting and some some criticism. Namely, there's you know there are these efforts to hash the video and the, the shooter's manifesto and get them taken down, but obviously you know they they're unfortunately uh, easier to find than you might like. And the, the Guardian ran an interesting interview this week with uh, Hani Farid, who first led the development of PhotoDNA, which is sort of one of the big hashing tools many platforms use to detect and remove child sexual abuse material. And uh, in the interview, Hani Farid says, you know, that this, this problem is 
and I'll quote, it's not as hard a problem as the technology sector will have you believe and that the companies are not motivated to, to fix the problem and that uh, they should be you know, working harder to update the technology to take account of, of new threat vectors. So with that in mind, can you give us a bit of an overview about how the technology is supposed to, to work, whether or not it's working in this instance with the Buffalo material and what you make of that critique for why it might be falling short? Yeah, sure. So what a content hash does is it it essentially develops a, a, an algorithmic fingerprint of a particular file. And what that allows is it, is it enables easy sharing of that fingerprint um, because that's just a string of letters and numbers. So it's not a big file like a whole video. And in a database, you can search for that hash um, which is unique to a particular video. And moreover, you can search for hashes and other hashes that are close to that hash. So if there are minor edits and minor changes to a video or an image, more robust hash- hashing mechanisms will allow you to find some of those. And, and that's really good. This is an invaluable tool when it comes to child safety. It is an invaluable tool that when it comes to counterterrorism work, certainly at Facebook, and on other platforms as well, but it is an imperfect tool. And it's imperfect in you know, a lot of ways. For, for starters, oftentimes, and this is not always the case, and this is not the case when it comes to a live streamed attack, but oftentimes platforms have rules that allow for the display of some terrorist material in certain circumstances. So you can think about media circumstances or or criticism of terrorism and those sorts of things. And, you know, Facebook has rules that allow that. Other platforms have rules that allow that sort of thing. And that means that you can't simply take stuff down in all circumstances based on a hash match to a piece of content like you can with child sexual material. And so there is just a policy difference in the way that platforms approach CSAM than how they approach terrorist material, which may be relevant for broader policy discussion and, and, and social discussion. In the case of a live streamed attack, nearly every platform is just going to take that down in all circumstances. And this was a, you know, really a precedent that was set in Christchurch and that, as far as I know, all the platforms have followed through on in, in, in subsequent cases, including Buffalo, well, what you see are real aggressive efforts to edit and, and alter these videos in ways that can, that, you know, don't change the video from the perspective of a human being watching it, but make it very different from the perspective of a computer and an algorithm. And so a simple hash-based approach won't always work. And the reason why you see this is that there are really aggressive efforts to identify copies of the Christchurch video um, on a platform like Facebook. There are untold numbers of hashes that, that, that Facebook has, you know, looking for that video, and still it slips through sometimes. And there are a range of different reasons for this. But what I would say is like hash-based approaches are good. They are necessary. Companies should invest in them. They should share that technology you know, more widely um, and open source it when they've got good solutions. But we should not expect perfection. And I just, you know, and I and I disagree with Hani on this. I think, you know, 
individual cases where these kinds of things slip through are going to happen at scale. Bad actors will iterate over and over and over and over again so that they can get this stuff up and it will live on, on various platforms. They will try over and over and over again to find the gaps in these systems. And when they do, we have to recognize that that is part of the process. We need to hold platforms to account for it. But we should, as a society and from a public policy perspective, understand that we are not going to get to the point. We don't want platforms to be at the point where they have perfect knowledge of everything. That would be a scary place. And we should not expect that they are going to be able to take down every copy in every instance, that that is some technical solution. We have to think about this more as a social problem. We have to demand that platforms do their part. But I do not expect that we are going to get some magical hash-based solution that is going to solve this problem perfectly. So the question from a policy perspective becomes, well, okay, if perfect isn't the answer and where we are today isn't the answer, where is that middle ground, right? And that is a much harder question to answer. And I think that, but that's the question that we need to be really driving at. And I, you know, and honestly, I think part of the problem why you have such negative and counterproductive in many cases, conversations between the policy community and the tech community is because on the one hand, there is this expectation in the policy community that the tech companies could just do it if they, only they tried. And the tech companies are understanding their technical limitations. They're looking at those demands and they're saying, well, if you're just going to yell at us no matter what we do, why should we even try? We've got to break that cycle. That is a terrible cycle. It's not good for anybody. That is the place where we are today. And it's why I really resist some of the claims like what Hani is saying, because I think it's actually counterproductive. It generates political pressure and media pressure on the companies, but it's not actually going to get us to the more important and substantive point of actually how do we define what is good enough? And this is the problem in much of the legislation we see around the world, too, looking to, to regulate companies, where regulators have actually deferred that question, expecting courts to solve them down the road. This is going to be a, a really hard problem. And unless we get to the point where we understand that perfection is, you know, is not going to happen, then we're not going to be able to have that really substantive conversation where we say, okay, companies, you actually have to get better. Here are the three or four or five or six or 10 things you can do. And here is a standard that we can expect you to reach. And I don't know that we're really having that conversation seriously enough. And I think it's really, really dangerous over the long run if we don't, because what will happen is critics of, of tech platforms will demand perfection. Tech platforms will sort of throw up their hands and say, well, we can't do it. Therefore, we shouldn't cooperate and we're not going to get anywhere. And so I think it's time for a change in the approach on some of the advocacy here, which doesn't mean that we have to give platforms a free hand. We shouldn't. We should put pressure on them. There are lots of ways that we should do that. But we also have to recognize that we live in a world of, Im of imperfection. The real world is imperfect. The digital world is imperfect. And we have to make the best of it rather than you know, self-gratifying claims that demonize you know, another side. I really, think, uh, I, I really think it's counterproductive and it hasn't helped. So that rings very 
true to me and it seems like you know yelling at platforms to just nerd harder and solve this isn't going to get us anywhere um, you know what evelyn i'm sorry to interrupt but like no part of this is that the platforms have brought this on themselves i was gonna say that's exactly what i was (laughs) gonna say next yeah (laughs) right i'm sorry well you'll probably say it No, I I mean, I wonder if we have different reasons for saying that. I mean, my reason is because for years they were telling us that the tech, that the AI was going to solve all of these problems and it was going to be really great. And they were, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would appear before Congress and say, you know, we're developing these tools. They're really great. They're getting 95% of hate speech and within five years, they're going to get all of it, that kind of thing. And so it's kind of not a surprise that so many outsiders have this magical view of it when it was sold that way. But I, I don't know if that was what you were going to say. No, I, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I do think that that companies sort of overstated the, you know, the prospects of AI and how good content moderation would get. But I also think there is this broader sense that Silicon Valley cultivated that they're magicians, you know, more generally, even than just content moderation, that we can do anything, you know, the cars will drive themselves with no negative consequences. When in reality, all of these systems, even the ones that work really well, have an error rate. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's really hard for folks to understand is that even really effective systems that, uh, you know, a Facebook large platform, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or whatever, let's say they get it right 98% of the time, that 2% is still a huge amount. And when you have effective search platforms, you can find that 2%, right? It's easy. And to be honest, for an individual user, the ability to distinguish between a situation when a platform has eliminated, you know, 50% of the bad stuff versus 2%, it's actually pretty hard. That's not an easy thing to do when you are looking, you know, through the sort of straw of your individual perspective on something. And, you know, I think this gets to the, you know, a lot of the arguments about transparency and data access and other the, the other sort of proposals that you hear coming out of various circles. And that's why I think those proposals have more legs than some of the others, because there could be real value there. But I do think that, you know, Silicon Valley did bring this on itself, both in a sort of a macro meta sense, no pun intended, and in this specific content moderation, you know, focused sense. Yeah, one of the worst things Facebook's ever done is take the word meta away from us. It's it's such a good word, and now it's uh, it's somehow become a pun. You know, there was some really good reporting in the Washington Post about Twitch um, and their response, talking to their trust and safety teams. And one of the things that really stood out for me that I think is relevant to this discussion is they really talked about how important it was that they used humans a lot, um, that they didn't just rely on the technology, um, and that they have a human in the loop for every decision. While it seems like the bigger platforms do really double down on this technological aspect. And it's somewhat surreal to see in the aftermath of these attacks, you know, journalists will just go on to these massive platforms and punch a bunch of searches in and come up with a surprising amount of footage that's up there for a surprising amount of time and, and have a surprising amount of views. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how does that happen? How is it that journalists are basically playing content moderators for the platforms? And is this something to do with the bigger platforms under-investing in humans? Um, or, or what's going on? Why is that? What's the disconnect there between what journalists can find and what platforms are seemingly failing to find? Yeah. So I, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that the big platforms don't employ human beings. They do. I mean, you know, 
Facebook has tens of thousands of, of content reviewers, you know, spread around the world. And so there are human beings at the basis of all of these things. If you are building large scale classifiers, you're, you're building those tools based on the decisions of human beings over, over time. To be clear, I wasn't suggesting that Facebook is just run by computers and Mark's sitting there uh, yeah. punching a bunch of keyboards. I mean, it's right. just in, in these moments, it's, are they, you know, do they have enough human beings? I mean, they do have tens of thousands, but they also have, you know, billions of people on the platform. So I think when you're dealing with extremism in particular, violent extremism, terrorism, you know, and this extends to other kinds of, of harms as well and how they manifest on the internet. But terrorists in particular, violent extremists in particular, don't operate on a single platform, right? And, and this is something I wrote about this years ago in a, in a you know, the Texas National Security Review. That, and, but terrorists will use one platform to host content. They'll use another platform to develop an audience, another for secure communications, another for financing, another to gather information about where they're going to attack. And we tend still to debate how one specific platform is operating, right? And that's understandable, but that's not really how anybody uses the internet. We all use the internet as this sort of amalgam of different platforms, and we bounce from one to the other based on URLs. And I think one of the big gaps that we've seen here, you know, in the in Facebook's response was not, and I'm sure there are counterexamples to this, but like the big one that everybody keeps calling out is an instance of the Buffalo attack streamed on a, a website called Streamable. Right. And then the link was posted on Facebook. And, and look, Facebook should do a better job of finding those links. No doubt. There are things that they can do. At the same time, when the content itself is not hosted on the platform, there are certain tools that are taken away. Right. Facebook can't hash the content on streamable. They can hash it on their own platform. But if the content hosting is not on a Facebook server, doing hash matching isn't going to work right? Other kinds of classification are not necessarily going to work if it's not on their own server. And I think that this is a really important dynamic. That concept is manifested over and over again in a million different ways when it comes to uh, managing these kinds of situations. It, you know, and, and so I think that you know, one of the things that companies need to do and they need to get better at this is one of the things that we did really successfully at Facebook when it came to ISIS and disrupting sort of propaganda distribution with ISIS is use intelligence, basically use the knowledge that whatever is happening somewhere else is going to show up on Facebook, gather and be very aware of what's happening in other places on the internet and prepare for those things to happen on Facebook. The ability to respond in a crisis like this one and gather information in a very human way using, you could use, vent, there's plenty of vendors out there that do this kind of thing, or you could build teams that do it themselves. Gather that information on the problem itself, not your, just your own platform. Everybody wants to just look through a tube at their own platform. The problem is oftentimes the threat, the way that the threat manifests on your platform is actually a function of the way that it's manifesting somewhere else on the internet. And I do not think that platforms systematically have developed the ability to understand the, that actual threat dynamic and then build it back into what they're doing on their own platform. 
you know, th- there are counterexamples of this. We did a very good job of this dealing with ISIS in the early days after I got to Facebook and it was really effective. I think that kind of model should be copied and should be extended other places, not just by Facebook, by, but by other companies. And I think there are ways to do that um, that could be really effective in, in situations like this. That said, there is no silver bullet. That kind of approach has to be layered in with using hashes and using a bunch, you know, using classifiers, you know, identifying, you know, meaningful user reports, all of the other pieces that are important and, and productive because none of them are going to be perfect. And even when you do all of that, it's still a game of probabilities. You know, you, you, all you can do is put yourself in a better position to act effectively. And that's what, you know, that's what you're going to see. That's what we see. You know, this is why the folks at Twitch are not, you watch, they're not going to come out and crow about their success here because they know they did a really good job, but they also, I'm sure they know that it was a game of probabilities and that there are worlds in which this, you know, they weren't able to be as good and who knows what's going to happen next time. That's the game. Companies need to put themselves in the best possible position to catch this stuff at scale, but they can't get to 100%. They're not going to. And all they can do is, is you know, sort of try to bend, bend that curve as close to perfect as possible, but, you know, understanding that they're never going to get there. What would it look like? What would it mean to extend the model that you're describing that Facebook developed to deal with violent Islamist extremism to this kind of extremism, you know, possibly across different platforms? And and also I'm curious, you know, if you think there's a clear reason why that hasn't already been done as far as you can tell. I think the the obvious question here in my mind is whether the different ideological valence of, you know, a a white supremacist shooter, a shooter Mm. who is expressing extremist far right views is just more politically difficult, frankly, and unfortunately for platforms to deal with than cracking down on Islamist extremism. Is that unfair? I don't think that's the explanation in this case, because I I don't think there's any hesitation. I, I mean, I think that that question is an important one more broadly when you're asking questions about hate organizations, hate speech, et cetera. I think that's an important question. I think in a situation like the Buffalo attack where there's been a terrorist attack, I, I don't think that there's any difference in, in, in treatment there. It's it's really all bets are off. I, I think the, the real issue is that having the capacity to do that requires an embrace of inefficiency. It means that you have people that are trained and capable of doing those kinds of things that are being paid not to do that stuff a lot of the time because there isn't a gigantic crisis all of the time. And I think that that's really tricky. I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. After the Christchurch attack, I personally found the the shooter's manifesto and, and pulled all of that stuff from HN, right? You might think, I mean, maybe that to some listeners, maybe that people are like, oh, great, Brian was there to do that. But I was the policy. I shouldn't have been the one doing that, right? I did that because I've got a background, like I had a background at West, you know, I'm an OG OSINT guy and was able to go and do those kinds of things. But that kind of knowledge generation and, and information gathering helps you defend yourself against what's coming next. 
And I think it's really valuable for companies to build and develop that kind of capacity where you're not focused on what's happening on my platform right now. It's what's happening with this event in the world so that I can gather what I need about this event in the world because I expect it's going to wind up on my platform because the internet is one big, you know, sort of messy environment and nothing stays in one place, right? These, these problems always manifest across platforms. And so that's the dynamic that I'm talking about is preparing for that sort of crisis scenario. Now that is not a systemic solution to the broader issues of content moderation or trust and safety more generally, right? But it is the kind of latent capacity that is not always used that requires training, that requires expertise, that is inefficient in some ways, that I think platforms, especially major ones, should invest in because it'll pay off for them in these kind of crisis moments. Now, that now the trick, of course, is that platforms should do this because they should get better, and there are ways for them to get better. At the same time, if those platforms get better, let's say they get ninety percent better, but uh, journalists can still find that last 10%. The negative story is still going to get written, right? And it's very hard to quantify that progress for the platforms and for the journalists. And so this is where I think, you know, there are a lot of folks that say, well, only the external pressure from the media actually makes platforms do anything. And I actually think that is increasingly not the case. That because that external pressure is unable to recognize progress in many cases, I think that it in some cases leads to sort of a throwing up of their hands. And that's, I mean, that to me is not, you know, that's no excuse. Like, you know, we should all be intrinsically motivated to just do the best job around these critical issues, period. But I wish that the wider environment actually incentivized that more than it does. And I don't think that it really does. And, and I think Frankly, I think the media environment contributes to that, unfortunately. Yeah, so I've talked about that a lot as well. And I think that's, you know, fair. We've said a number of times that content moderation at scale can never be perfect. And so when errors slip through, that the negative stories is a layup, um, especially because it's it's easy and fun to to bash platforms. On the other hand, it's hard to balance that with the idea that, you know, we do know so many instances uh, where platforms have failed to be responsible, failed to invest enough. And so it's hard to know what success looks like. Like, what is a successful outcome in this case? How do we know that a platform is behaving responsibly? I mean, to me, I guess that's why a lot of the solutions that I think about are around transparency, because then at least we would have some external verification of what platforms are saying in terms of the resources that they're pouring in or the efforts that they're making or the progress that they're making. But I, I don't know. I don't know if you have an idea of how do we build that kind of trust and, and what does success look like in, in this space and how will we ever know if we're there? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really difficult. I think transparency is obviously key. I have some ideas about how that transparency should be structured. And I think it's going to have to be like horribly detailed, unfortunately, um, and really, really nerdy, like even nerdier than a lot of these discussions are already. I mean, feel free to, to give us a potted version or get as nerdy as you like. Our, our well, listeners are up for it. So I'm developing this idea. I, I almost don't want to say it because it's, everyone's going to freak out. But 
talk about a teaser, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, but I look. I think that the I think that we have to stop talking about the platforms as whole, as like entire, you know, as unified things. Platforms have different surfaces on them, and the way that we need to understand trust and safety operations and content moderation is not speaking about a uh, a unitary actor like Facebook as if it's a unitary actor or, or, or even, even a more simple platform like Twitter as a unitary actor, there are different surfaces within all of those applications. And while they may seem like they work in a unified way to a user on the front end, the back ends may be very different, which means that trust and safety and content moderation systems on those back ends may be very different, which means that if we really want trust and transparency, we need to have trust and transparency across those different surfaces. This, in my mind, is how we ought to be thinking about scaling regulatory requirements. It's not by the number of users, it's not by revenue, but by surface um, within platforms. This would actually get to the point of incentivizing platforms to build unified trust and safety backends um, that impact their entire platforms having unified rule sets that operate across their systems. And it would actually set requirements based on the way threats manifest rather than based on these proxy metrics that people are thinking about now. Um, So I would build transparency requirements around those sorts of things. So if somebody says, well, look, we do hash matching or we're running classifiers or we're doing all these kinds of things, the question shouldn't be, oh, cool. It should be on which surfaces? On all of them? On some of them? Where? And that, to me, gets, like, that gets really, really, really complicated. Now, the problem with this framework, like the very obvious problem with this framework, is that it's so complicated, it would require a regulatory infrastructure almost beyond, you know, like a really intense regulatory infrastructure. You know, this idea, you know, maybe this idea will get more legs in Brussels than it will in the United States. But, you know, that's the problem. I think it's the right idea. The challenge is actually executing on it in a way that would be uh, reasonable. But I actually think that that kind of model reflects the way that these challenges ought to ought to be addressed. And and I don't think, you know, because number of users or or even revenue, in my mind, was sort of ancillary. Um, to the actual trust and safety issues. And it, it really is a matter of surfaces. And, and how do you defend those surfaces? And, and I just don't think we think about it like that. Yeah, so I just fundamentally uh, agree with that and have talked about that a lot in, in my work as well, mm-hmm. that we need to think of uh, content moderation as systems rather than we get stuck in this like very individualistic kind of single piece of content paradigm and look at like, there's the rule, there's the piece of content and, you know, how, how do they match up or not? Yeah, I really liked your new paper. Oh, thanks, way, Ryan. Yeah, that was, the, that was the layup I was giving you. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you taking it. But one of the reasons... <laughs> um, just everyone patting everyone on the back here. One of the reasons why I think it's it's useful or, or a more productive approach is because of how different the surfaces are, which is kind of what you were alluding to then. Um, and it's not just within single platforms, but across different platforms, like we might want to think about very different models for de- very different kinds of platforms. You know, we might think, like I believe the manifesto in this case was on Google Drive, which is a very different kind of platform to a Facebook or we, you know, the Chans and Aitken, they are 
um, not the same kind of platform uh, as an algorithmic feed. Uh, and then there's like encrypted messaging platforms, which are a completely different model again. And so we might think that the systems that they need to develop to deal with these kinds of threats are completely different or somewhat different. Do you have, I mean, one of the things that I find hardest in in this space is, you know, we've talked a lot about how this is an internet-wide ecosystem. We can't think of platforms in isolation, but it also seems to me that different platforms should have different kinds of responsibilities in these cases. Do you have thoughts about that? How do we think about the different kinds of surfaces and do they have differing levels of responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that they have different kinds of responsibilities, but I think that the interaction between these surfaces is really, really important, you know, and, you know, if you are, you know, a document repository, for example, you know, you don't have the same kind of social functions, you you may or may not be encrypted, you know, you, you can't easily broadcast stuff there. But if you've got you know, maybe you ought to have some responsibility for understanding if links to that, to certain files are are going viral or something along those lines. If you're an encrypted platform, you may like to tout the fact that you don't have algorithmic recommendations, but if you have a URL link to an encrypted group that can be easily distributed on an algorithmic, uh, on a platform where there's algorithmic amplification, you effectively have algorithmic amplification. Right. I mean, this sort of preening that I see from uh, some folks about the fact that they don't have algorithmic amplification when you can get to those platforms via one click from Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, frankly, is totally self-serving and hypocritical in my mind. If you're going to create private spaces, have private spaces, but don't have gigantic private spaces that are directly connected to algorithmically amplified spaces um, and effectively are no different than those platforms as a result to a user. So I think that it's that kind of interaction that really makes this space really challenging. But when I think about surfaces, it's not, I'm not even just talking about, you know, a, a document repo or a social media platform or an encrypted platform. It's things like, you know, within a single platform, you know, like a, a Facebook marketplace or um, surfaces for storing user information versus content or on Twitter spaces versus feed and those kinds of things, right? Like there are lots of examples where these kinds of these kinds of interactions that are available on a single platform and within a single experience are actually very different backends. And so when you're thinking about the development of detection tools and enforcement mechanisms, they're actually quite different in those scenarios. And the question that everybody should be asked is like, you know, sure, you've got these great things in place, but do they work across all of those surfaces within your platform? Do the rules apply to all aspects um, of the platform? And does detection apply across all aspects of a platform? And I think those questions are really, really important. And when we think about transparency and we think about, you know, sort of uh, requirements to understand this stuff, like, you know, answering those questions is incredibly difficult, right? Especially if you're on a complex platform, breaking things down in that way is like miserable, for sure. The How that translates into a sort of a metaverse concept is something that you'd have, you're going to have to ask somebody smarter than me about. 
But I think those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves as we as we move forward and we think about sort of transparency requirements, whether you know required by regulation or not. That's what it needs to mean going forward, because that's going to tell us whether a platform as a whole is safe. And if we're not getting down to that level of detail, we don't actually know. And so I think, you know, uh, unfortunately, the only way to really do this is with a, a lot of sort of truly obnoxious digging and regulation to, to get down into the nuts and bolts of how these things actually work. And I just don't think it's not clear to me that 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 that's really happened so far in in some of the regulatory proposals that I've seen in the United States. It seems like in the EU, at least, there's been more digging on this, though, you know, and I have not read the whole 600 page DSA yet, but it seems to me that a lot of that is it's not totally clear to me how that stuff plays out in that document yet. Um, and, and again, there are smarter people you could ask about that, including me in a month when I've actually read the thing. We'll hold you to that. Um, in all seriousness, I do want to take a step back and, and ask about uh, something that you've also written about in connection with Buffalo, which is the radicalization process. So we've been talking about what happens, you know, once uh, an atrocity has already happened, once the video and the manifesto are out there. But of course, there's also the question of what happens, you know, in the lead up to this when a person is going down this path. So keeping in mind that, you know, as we've said, there is an enormous amount we don't know about this particular case, and I don't want to push you into speculation. Can you talk a little bit about what role platforms do and don't play in radicalization of this type? Because I do think that that's been a, a major focus of public discussion around the, sh the Buffalo shooting. Yeah, I mean, I think at, at this point, most of what we know, or what we think we know, we've learned from the terrorists manifesto or, you know, things that they, that they wrote on discord. And as many other people have noted, we should be very careful about those statements because they were clearly constructed with an intent to influence all of us reading this in the aftermath. And so that doesn't mean that they're all wrong, but it does mean that they have been curated um, and curated in a way to advance, you know, the shooter's agenda as, as he understood it. And so what he said was, yeah, I got radicalized online, you know, on the, on the chans. Uh, that's where I sort of learned my, my stock and trade. And there's probably some truth to that. But I think one of the other things that we've seen over the years is people have worried and rightly worried about radicalization online. And it's very clear that many people across a range of ideologies have been radicalized in part or in, in part based on material that they have engaged on the internet and communities that they've engaged on the internet. But it's also true that there's almost always some offline story and that true sort of independent online radicalization is actually much more rare than I think the, the public understands. Uh, you, you know, the sort of the, the classic example of this was the, the fears about ISIS radicalization, especially in Europe in, you know, 2014 through, you know, 2016 or so. And what we wound up seeing there is that radicalization did, the internet did play a role. People would watch videos and propaganda and they would engage with, with communities on the internet, but they also oftentimes radicalized in clusters, geographic clusters, you know, friends and, 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 you know, cousins and, 
networks built around influential people in the real world would use material that they found online and would connect people with with communities online. But there was an offline component as well. And I just, you, you know, it's it's entirely possible that the Buffalo shooter is that that true solo internet outlier. Um, but I don't think, I think we should be careful about drawing that conclusion at this point because history suggests that these processes are more complicated. You know, in, it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to know for sure. I'm not going to, I'm not really not going to speculate, but I just urge everybody to sort of understand that broader context and wait until law enforcement does their job and they'll they'll be able to give us more insight into what actually happened here. Okay, so that's an excellent segue to the next question I wanted to ask about, which is the role of law enforcement and collaboration between platforms and law, law enforcement at sort of all stages of this process. I mean, obviously, in the aftermath, there's a um, that's a much easier question, but there's these difficult questions in sort of in, in general in terms of dealing with extremism online and what the ideal relationship should be between law enforcement and platforms and and also what it currently is because obviously some collaboration will be absolutely necessary and really beneficial and helpful for both finding this stuff and and countering it on the other hand of course there are obvious free speech concerns with having the government too involved in monitoring and censoring online speech or in giving commands to companies on how they should moderate this kind of content So I'm curious for your thoughts on that, you know, what the current relationship kind of looks like, because of course, again, that's something that's not very transparent, but also how you think this should work, because it seems to me that there's really difficult equities to balance here. Yeah, I I mean, I I think there's a lot of really tricky pieces to this. I mean, there's there's a lot of law that 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 covers bits and pieces of when platforms can provide information to law enforcement that is not nearly as famous as Section 230. But is really important uh, for for people at platforms as they think about you know when when does something I see on the internet it, when is it so concerning that I can pass that to law enforcement because I'm I think there's a real threat to life uh, or you know an imminent threat of violence and so the major companies have established law enforcement teams many of whom are st- many of which are staffed by law enforcement veterans that really understand the kinds of things that law enforcement agencies are looking for. Uh, They speak the language. They've oftentimes been on the other side, filling out warrants and things like this. At at, at a number of companies, there are these teams spend time training law enforcement, saying, hey, look, if you want, if there's something on our platform that, that you want to have access to, here's what the law says. Here's how you need to submit a request. Um, here's the kinds of things you need to put in a warrant so that it is scoped appropriately and legal. Um, and this is the kind of thing that will allow us to respond positively because what you see a lot of the time is that this is still relatively new for many law enforcement agencies, you know, like the FBI knows how to do this, but if you are a smaller law enforcement agency and you're investigating a crime, it may be a terrible crime. You may not have somebody that is used to writing a warrant to get information from Google or Facebook or Discord or whatever. Um, And yet those companies are going to want to make sure that warrant is really solid before they're turning over user information. And so you want that kind of interface before an event like this happens so that all the process works right. The other thing that you want is you want to make sure that law enforcement agencies 
aren't making overly broad requests, which is an easy thing to do, right? Uh, this is something that platforms, I think, are very attuned to, to saying no to that you need to, you know, hone this and target, you know, more appropriately, because that nobody wants to nobody wants to go before a judge on this kind of thing and 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 have to explain what what happened there. And so there's a lot more, you know, there's there is back and forth uh, on these sorts of things. There are also circumstances where, you know, and it shouldn't come as a surprise, where platforms become aware of something before law enforcement does. And, you know, the law in this regard is pretty vague. I think that it would behoove everybody if it was a little bit more concrete um, and gave, frankly, platforms some safe harbor in situations when uh, more explicit safe harbor when they refer something in good faith to law enforcement because they believe that there is a an imminent threat of violence or a severe threat of violence. And I think that would really help. Um, I think that would facilitate more transparency about that, the, these kind of processes. And I think it would, frankly, people would appreciate the work that the platforms do more when they understood that there are a lot of circumstances where platforms have actually really prevented harm. And that stuff doesn't get talked about because of some of the ambiguities here. And people just don't know. On that note, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Padja Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.